to lead us together into a prayer petition as a congregation asking for God's work in our congregation. I'll lead us in prayer. Uh, if you would bow your heads and pray with me, and if you agree with what you hear at the end of my prayer, just feel free to join in saying amen as I finish. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you that we can come to you not placing our hope in our own righteousness, but on the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray this morning for our church. We're reminded of those in our church who have the privilege of relying on you and on our church in a special way as their families don't know Christ. Father, we're reminded this morning of, of several sisters across our congregation whose husbands and families still need the gospel. Father, we pray for these sisters to have grace in their homes, to have wisdom as they make difficult decisions, to have faithfulness as they pray for their families, and hope in your ability to work in their spouses. Father, we pray would you save their spouses? Father, we pray this morning for those hurting in our church. We think of Janet Nielsen as she was diagnosed with cancer this last week. Father, we thank you for the support she's already received. We pray for her surgery on March 4th and her chemotherapy afterwards. Strengthen our sister. Thank you for her strength and her faith and the, the joy that you've already given her. Father, let us as a body care well for her physically and also spiritually as we read scripture to her, as we pray for her, as we actively point her to Christ. May she grow in this season of her life. Father, we pray this morning also for our church's Wednesday night Bible study as we finished Colossians this last week and begin a new epistle this next week. We pray that you would grow uh, those who attend on Wednesday evenings, perhaps bring more to our number, that we would study your word and be shaped by it. Build us up, we pray. Father, we pray not just for our church, but for other churches as well. We're, we're reminded today of churches in Ukraine, and we think of Living Hope Church, led by Pastor Sergei. We pray for their church today. Father, thank you for sustaining and protecting Pastor Sergei and his church. Thank you for deepening his faith among profound trials. Father, as they meet this morning, we pray that you would minister to them through your word preached. Father, we pray that the same things that we rely on here, the, the word preached, the word read, songs sung, prayers lifted, the ordinances practiced, that these same basic things that we hold in common would be used by you at Living Hope Church today. Father, we go now to your word. May we apply it, O oh God, to ourselves. May we behold glory as we reflect on our Savior. Open our eyes to see our need of you and of the glory of the shepherd who has sought his sheep. May we worship you this morning. Father, Give me strength, I pray. Guide my words. Sustain me. May I be a vessel that you would use for your glory. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.
last Sunday, over 123 million viewers turned in to, tuned in to watch the Super Bowl. I'm told it was more viewers than any Super Bowl in history. In fact, it was America's largest TV audience since the moon landing. Perhaps you were watching. Perhaps you saw in the middle of the broadcast a notable commercial for, of all things, Jesus. Titled, He Gets Us, this commercial featured individuals from opposing ideologies washing one another's feet, concluding with large letters on the screen, Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. The implication from the images shown is that Jesus is welcoming to everyone. Now, the reaction from this commercial has been varied, and it's been passionate. Several of you have come and talked to me, and you've rightly pointed out that the commercial leaves out so much of Jesus's call to repentance. Uh, the, the commercial risks confusing the gospel, and it risks the feeding of the doctrine of our modern age, which says love is simply tolerance. I think that's a good critique. I think you're right to be concerned. Others of you, I've heard, have sought to be more charitable, uh, being thankful for the, the helpful push that the commercial has been in seeing the radical grace of Jesus. After all, wasn't Jesus uncomfortably gracious with sinners, like the commercial depicts? I think that's fair praise as well. As I have reflected on the commercial, I've been reminded of our study in the book of Luke and just how powerfully nuanced Jesus is on these very issues. On the one hand, last week in Luke, uh, we saw Jesus give the most radical call to costly discipleship. Jesus demands everything. And just frankly, that doesn't make for good Super Bowl commercials, does it? But then on the other hand, in today's passage, Jesus pushes our expectations for how radically gracious he is with sinners before they get cleaned up and how far he's willing to go to bring us in back to him. Even a multi-million dollar commercial for the Super Bowl can't do this grace justice, can it? Well, thankfully today, we have more than a Super Bowl commercial to shape our understanding of the radical welcome of Jesus Christ. If you've brought your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke 15. Today we come to Jesus' masterful story of the prodigal son. It's a surprising story, really, with several unexpected twists in it. And in the context, right out the gate, sets the stage for really the whole chapter. Look with me briefly at verses 1 and 2. We read there, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Sinners and tax collectors. They were despised and horrible people. And they were drawn to Jesus. The Pharisees, the, the morally good religious leaders of the day, 
looked on, and they, they found themselves just questioning the scene. Jesus receives the worst people that you can imagine. Clearly, this was difficult to process. Maybe they asked their pastor, how should they understand this uncomfortable grace? Well, Jesus' response to these Pharisees and their grumbling is in the form of three parables, each building on one another. And together they teach us that God's grace towards sinners is surprisingly amazing. Today I want to just take these three parables together. We know them well, so I'm just going to pull out from them three different lessons, three surprising aspects of the parables that Jesus uses to teach us about his grace. So the first lesson the parables teach us, number one, the surprising depth of lostness. I wonder if the, the Pharisees were sitting there at that meal wondering, does Jesus understand how far off these tax collectors really are? How messed up their moral understanding is? Uh, does he understand how lost these sinners are? Well, Jesus emphasizes just how lost they are. The first story is of a shepherd who, having a hundred sheep, loses one out in the open country. He searches and he finds it. The picture is that that one sheep is not where it ought to be with the other 99 sheep. No, now we should understand uh, sheep are weak. They are defenseless. They're, they're foolish on their own. So a single sheep by itself off out in the open wilderness couldn't be more helpless. Or consider the second parable. A woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one of them. So she has to go and search. She has to get out her lamp and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it. You see, lost coins don't find themselves. These two parables set the stage with a very simple point. Like a wandering and helpless sheep or like a, a valuable coin that needs to be found, sinners are lost. Naturally, we are apart from God. We're separated from God in our sin. We need somebody from the outside to come and find us. But sinners, we're not just wandering and lost. Jesus shows us the surprising depth of our lostness. We have rebelled against the Father. Look at the third parable. In verse 11 and following, Jesus introduces a father who has two sons. The story abruptly begins when the younger brother goes to his father and just bluntly asks for his share of his father's inheritance. Get this. He's asking for an advance payment on what he would receive when his father dies. The offense of this is just staggering. Timothy Keller rightly points out that he's essentially saying, I wish you were dead already. He's saying to his father, I would rather have your good gifts than have you yourself. Here Jesus is showing the surprising depth of our sin against him. Can you imagine being the father? What must this have request felt like? Give me my inheritance. And yet... What does the father do in verse 12? He gives his son the request. He went to the bank, and he emptied out his savings accounts. He took out a, a second mortgage on his house. 
He applied for early withdrawal of his retirement. He sold half his flocks and auctioned off all of his family heirlooms. And he divided up all of that money between his two sons. Oh, friends, what do you think it feels like to God when you say to him, I'll take this world you've created for me, but I don't want you. The depth of the lostness deepens. Look down at verse 13. We read, Not many days later, the, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, I imagine that the parties must have been exhilarating. The, the reputation he gained must have been just thrilling. The, the wine, oh, it must have just tasted so sweet. And, and the prostitutes, they must have felt so good in the moment. Doesn't your sin feel so good in the moment? But pleasure outside of the Father's house is always short-lived. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything? Throw yourself into the pleasures of this world. And in the end, you'll find that you are still hungry. In the end, you'll find that this world doesn't really give you anything. It doesn't satisfy. I wonder, could this lostness get any worse? Here we have a Jewish young man shaming his father, despised, destitute, hungry, hiring himself out to a Gentile, and then feeding pigs in a pig pen, not even being allowed to eat from the pig slop. This is the surprising depth of lostness. It will not only leave you vulnerable, sin will not only leave you incapable, but it will leave you shamefully empty-handed, poor, and just unsatisfied. That's what sin does to you. That's what your sin will do to you this week. Oh, friends, can you see yourself in this picture? Can you admit that the empty promises that your sin offers and the, the unventual unsatisfaction, the lack of satisfaction that it brings? I wonder, students and young adults here today, as you look forward into your lives, maybe some of you are tempted to throw yourself into the fleeting pleasures of sin. Maybe some of you are, are quietly considering the sugar rush of a, of a reckless lifestyle in front of you. Can you see where it will end up? Or, or visitors who are here today, maybe you're here for the first time and you're just considering Jesus. You're learning more about him. Can you admit to yourself that this, this quest for satisfaction in your life can only lead to hunger with all the, the things other than Christ that you've pursued? That, that satisfaction isn't there with the, the pleasures of this world apart, apart from Jesus Christ. This is the, the depth of lostness on display. It's rebellion against the Father, it's hungry, and it's empty. But notice a second theme of this chapter. Notice number two, the surprising height of divine joy. 
Okay, so now remember our setting here. Jesus is this amazing teacher. He's this rabbi. He's sitting with these other religious leaders, and he's just surrounded by these dirty sinners, by the, those with the, the worst reputations. And surely his reputation will be stained as well. The Pharisees are grumbling about the situation. What about Jesus? Is, is Jesus grumbling inside about the situation? Is God really okay with this situation? Jesus had just said to them, I, I know how lost they are. Well, now he's saying, you don't know how happy I am. You see, if there's one pervading theme of this chapter, it's the, the staggering joy of the one who's searching. Jesus searches, and he finds us, and he is happy about it. Ten times over this chapter, joy and celebration are highlighted by Jesus. But who is the one that is rejoicing? Friends, God He's the shepherd who finds his sheep. He's the one who has this erupting joy that, that brings others in to celebrate with him. God is the one pictured by this woman finding her coin and again has this overflowing joy that brings others in to, to rejoice with him. Did you notice verse 10? Look down at it. Jesus gives us a glimpse into he heaven. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. <laughs> now, you might have read this wrongly, honestly, like I did for years. I until I looked carefully, this is how I had read the verse. I had read, there is joy among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. <laughs> That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say there's joy among the angels. No, Jesus says there is joy before the angels of God. I did a double take on this this week when I found it. I looked it up. Sure enough, the Greek word before, anopion, it means in front of, in the face of, in the sight of someone. The point is that here on the stage of heaven, when you turn from your empty pleasures of sin, and you find your satisfaction in God, a divine eruption of joy just explodes in heaven. And the angels are the audience. It's before them. So who are they watching? Who's the one, if it's not them, that's just exploding with joy over just one of you turning and repenting? Who's at the center of this heavenly joy? Well, the answer is just unmistakably illustrated for us in the third parable. Jesus tells of this wayward son, and honestly, this surprising twist of the parable that we've just grown accustomed to so we don't even see it, is that the happiest person in this story of the prodigal son is not who we'd expect. I mean, it's not the son who's found who is celebrating the most in this story. The happiest person in the story is the father who finds his son. Go back to that pig pen with me in verse 17. When he came to himself, the son, 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Look at how little the son does. He can't clean himself up. He can't dress himself rightly. He can't earn his sonship. He can only admit his unworthiness. And so he practices this uh, apology speech, thinking that maybe he can woo his, his father into compassion. Maybe if I can get this out, and he'll actually hear me say these things, maybe I can elicit some compassion from my father. I've got nothing to give. Maybe I can win him over. Oh, friends, that's not how our father works. That's, that's not how his fire of compassion is lit in his soul. Worship with me as you read verse 20. We read there, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him this is the surprising height of divine joy. The father wasn't waiting off inside the house. He must have been down there at the very end of the driveway, looking back and forth down the road, searching for a glimpse of his son. For when he saw the son, the son was still a, a long way off. And no speech was needed to stir his compassion. Did you see it? The mere glimpse of a son wanting to come home was all he needed for his heart to just overflow with compassion. Oh, beloved, this is the disposition of your father. This is the reflex of his heart. His joy does not begin with your performance. His joy does not begin when you have finished proving yourself. Oh no. His joy begins with his rescue of you. Didn't we just see this in the, in the previous parable? Didn't we see it already? Look up in the story of the shepherd. What did verse 5 say? When he had found his sheep, he lays them on his shoulders, rejoicing, and then he comes home. Wait, when? When did the shepherd rejoice? It's not when he arrives back home that he begins rejoicing. No, not our God. His joy erupts when the weight of the sheep drops onto his shoulders. Oh, brothers, our Savior is not waiting for your performance to take joy in you. He's waiting for you to collapse into his arms. Why wouldn't you collapse into the arms of Jesus in your sin today? The Puritan Thomas Goodwin says it this way. He's thinking particularly about Christ, the second person of the Trinity, shows the same heart. He says, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Goodwin continues, Christ gets more joy and comfort 
than even we do when we come for, to him for help and mercy. That's the point of this chapter. That's one of them, at least. The, the joyful one is the, is the father. It's saying, I'll tell you who's the happy one when they come back. I get the joy. Uh, so at the end of the driveway there, that, that father of the wayward son, he, you know what he did? He did what no self-respecting patriarch ever would have done in his world. He grabbed up his robes and he ran shamelessly. Protocol, it just went out the window. He, he embraced his son, never mind that he still reeked with the stench of the pigs. The father doesn't hold back. He, he kisses his son on, on, on the same cheeks that the prostitutes had just caressed. His shameless affection just spills out for this lost son. The father is unafraid to put his joy on center stage. Let the angels see. Let them see. My son has come home. And then the son begins a speech, which he had planned. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. True. But notice, the father interrupts him there. The son has no chance to say all that he has planned and to suggest that maybe now he can be a servant. Maybe now he can earn back some of the father's love. No, the father instead stops him and insists on treating him as a son. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Son, you, you don't need to get robes for yourself to cover yourself up. I'll provide that for you. I won't hold back my blessing. Take my ring of authority. It's yours. Uh, you don't fear being destitute. Just, just bring the best shoes. Put them on his feet now. Oh, but friends, what will the neighbors think? What, what, what will they think when they see this just shameless uh, affection of this father? Well, here's how the conversation would go if it were me, or maybe if it were you. Oh, I, I see your son came home. Yeah, he, he's, uh, <clears throat> he's back from his travels. Uh, we're just taking some time to get him settled. Uh, we haven't told many people his back yet. We're going to see how things go. He's actually, uh, <clears throat> he's been on quite a journey. It's a bit embarrassing. We'll see if he gets himself on track. It's not this father. No. <laughs> Listen to the, the height, the surprising height of divine joy. Verse 23, he calls out, he calls out to the servants, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Unashamed celebration. The father spends on behalf of his returning son. The, the father rejoices on behalf of his returning son. The father is unashamed for anyone to see the fact that his son has returned. This is the height of divine joy. Let me apply this just briefly to us today. 
Christian friends here in the room, if you have any hope of truly fighting sin in your life, this perspective of divine joy must lodge itself into the deepest gears of your legalistic heart. You must fight sin, not by turning to God who is waiting for you to perform. No, don't do that. You must fight sin by reveling in worship of the God who is waiting to find joy in you coming back. It's what he wants. So, so, so next time you sin, this week, tomorrow, tonight, next time you sin, just kill the anti-gospel lie that the devil says that you'd better put on your clean clothes before coming to him. That's not how God works. The robe of Christ's righteousness is placed on the dirty backs of us sinful sons. He'll give you his robe. He'll throw the celebration. He'll welcome you back. That's where repentance starts. Not in you cleaning yourself up. Or, or what about anyone who's here today who isn't yet a Christian? Friends, you need this Savior. The message of the gospel is not that we do enough to earn God's pleasure. The message of the gospel is that we have rebelled against God and that Christ was the good shepherd who was sent from heaven to come to us. He came and he lived the life that we should have lived. He died in our place, the death that we should have died. He rose again, showing that he is greater than death and sin. Now he offers his robes of righteousness to you freely, without cost if you will but put your, your faith in him. Let me encourage you, if this is a new message for you today, or if this is just a message that you're still working to understand, working to, to look to him in faith, let me encourage you, talk to someone today. Uh, find one of the pastors at, at one of the doors on your way out, or, or even just find any of the church members of this church. You know, to be a church member here, we believe that it means you understand this gospel message. So hopefully any of us can tell you just how good of a Savior he is and how he will save you if you merely look to him in faith. Right, let me offer just a brief pastoral note here before going on. I know that some of you might be wondering if this story undermines uh, the right consequences of sin or the need of true repentance. After all, I know some of you have been sinned against. Does this passage leave room for expecting change or expecting true repentance? Does this passage leave room for things like church discipline or, or holding ch Christians accountable? But let me just remind you here to be careful in how far we stretch just one parable. The point of this parable is to revel in the glory of a gracious God. But if you're wanting to think more about repentance and all that follows after receiving this radical grace, I just encourage you, go to our website, look up last week's sermon by Pastor Caleb on James 4, walked through so well for our church, how Christ expects us to repent after we've received this grace. So just go do that if you're working through that question today. Well, you see, this passage is teaching us about this uncomfortable grace and that, that scene that we're in with these religious leaders 
they're surely at uncomfortable at this point. I wonder what drove their discomfort. Why, why do they have this bitterness and prejudice that we read? I, I want to argue to you lastly here that to, to these men and, and to us Pharisees, Jesus gets to the heart of the problem with the final section. Point number three, the, the surprising distance of duty. The surprising distance of duty. I wonder if as you heard this read, you noticed the pattern of the three parables. It went something like this. Lost, found, rejoicing, celebration. So the sheep is lost, it's found, there's rejoicing about it, and then there's a whole celebration. Or, or the coin. Lost, found, rejoicing, celebration. The, the pattern's clear. But then we get to the story of the wayward son. And the, the pattern is just broken. It's, it's honestly narrative genius. There's lost, yes. Found, yes. Rejoicing. And then celebration rejected. What a surprising twist. What a whiplash this last paragraph would be to the hearers. Jesus adds a chilling epilogue, a second scene, and he writes the Pharisees into the story. Look at verse 25. Now the older brother was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. Uh, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. The older brother refuses to celebrate. <laughs> do, do you see the, the surprising distance that Jesus is introducing? The, the, the rebellious, shame-filled, sin-stained younger brother is the one in the party. He's the one enjoying the presence of the father. And the, the morally upright, the faithfully serving, the longtime church member, the older brother, he's the one left out in the field, angry and separated from the father. By the way, I love church membership. I'm just mentioning it because it's a, a gem in the Bible that you can hide behind and you can claim your righteousness in. You see, this, this faithful servant, this, this respectable, this cleaned-up older brother, he misses the party. This is the point Jesus is making. What is Jesus teaching? What, what's the heart of the problem? Before you think that this could never be you, that you could never be one of these Pharisees that gets angry at God's grace, that you could never be the one missing the party of the Father, please notice where in the heart Jesus puts the spotlight. What could possibly motivate this older brother's heart? Look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he said to his father, Look, these many years I have served you. 
and I've never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, he doesn't even name his brother, when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you've killed the fattened calf for him. The father said to him, son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What a surprising distance. This older brother finds himself removed from the father. Not because of his sin, but because of his service. The younger brother had said, I'd rather have your riches than have you. Well, the older brother's cancer is far more deceptive. He says, I'd rather earn your riches than have you. Don't you see the heart of the older brother? Friends, I would argue the same impulse is in all of us. Uh, He's more consumed, this, this older brother, he's more consumed with his own goodness in his sight than being with the father. Of course this led him to bitterness. Of course this led him to compare himself to his younger brother. The older brother says, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Deep down inside, he thinks he's really earned God's pleasure by his long service. Deep down inside, he thinks his performance is what brings his acceptance. Did you notice, by the way, this is the same heart impulse of the younger brother. Back in the pig pen, the the younger brother had planned to come and planned to make himself what? A servant. Said, I'll I'll go be a servant and earn my father's pleasure. (laughs) But the father won't let him. He won't let him fall into that legalism. No, the father comes back and he interrupts him. He cuts him off. He puts a robe on him and says, no, you're a son. You are a son. I give the robe. Friends, the glory of this parable is that the Father pursues both types of sinners. The Father goes out on the road to bring in the openly rebellious. The Father goes out into the field to bring in the self-sufficient religious son. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've come to seek out two kinds of wayward sheep. Both of you are motivated by duty, just in different ways. But both of you can come in, if you'll just come in. And the story ends. The story ends. We're not told if the older brother will actually come in. Or if he's left out in the field, away from the father. By the way, Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God, is just a a phenomenal set of meditations helping to unpack this mentality of an older brother that all of us honestly have. I wonder, church, have you adopted the mindset of an older brother? Or maybe it's better to ask, how have you adopted the mindset of an older brother? One of you confessed to me this week that you're like the older brother when you see a newer Christian at church get attention more quickly than you. Do you ever feel overlooked? Do you ever feel as if your service hasn't earned you the priority it should? Another one of you confessed to me this week that you're like the older brother when you sin. 
After you sin, you catch yourself uh, trying to do something good so that you can feel better about yourself, like an older brother does, instead of rehearsing the gospel first and admitting your neediness of Christ. Or maybe you're like the older brother by idolizing service and what you do, even in the church. Finding your identity in your service rather than finding your identity in knowing the Father. Here's a test. Can you, can you set down any ministry or role you have and still find yourself happy merely knowing the Father? Which one are you? Are you the younger brother needing to repent of your open sin? Or are you the older brother needing to repent of your self-righteousness? Or are you a little bit of both? We should conclude. Edmund Clowney is phenomenal in his reflections on this parable. He, he offers a profound observation as he reflects on the end of the story. He rightfully asks this question. This is what he says. He says, what should the older brother have done? Well, certainly the older brother should have gone into the party, should have loved celebrating. Oh, yes, but perhaps even more than that. See if this reminds you of anyone. He says this. He says, perhaps a true older brother would hear that his brother had rebelled, and he would have left his home, no matter how glorious it was. And he would have gone out, and he would have searched for the wayward brother. Perhaps the true older brother would have not minded being among some sinners if he could find his lost brother. Perhaps then he would have brought his brother home and helped to throw a party for his brother. Even if it required slaying a calf, he'd do it himself. Perhaps a true and better older brother might say, take my inheritance. Whatever inheritance I have, take it. Let me share it with him. Take my robe and, and put it on him. Bring him in, even if it costs me greatly. Bring him in. I'll pay whatever it takes. Oh, friends, this is what our Savior has done. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to come and find you. He's not ashamed to bring you back. He's not ashamed to share his inheritance with you. He's not ashamed to pay that cost. Hebrews says, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Won't you look to this Jesus today? Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for your loving reflex of joy to us. We thank you that when we were enemies with you, at enmity with you. You sought us out. We thank you that you paid the price that our sin necessitates. We thank you that you've brought us home to yourself. Father, I pray that our church would fight sin correctly, 
by seeing the grandeur and joy of our great God and worshiping him, by, by throwing ourselves into his arms, collapsing there, looking for your righteousness to come and change us, not our own. Work this in us as a church, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.